0: My name is Brian, I serve as the pastor of Citrus Church, and I'm really glad to have you with us this morning. Um, We're a new church, we're still young, we're we're, uh, less than a year old for worship, so I guess we're still wearing the equivalent of like church diapers, whatever that looks like. Um, But we're a new church serving the Horizon West community, um, and so I'm thankful that you're here with us this morning in worship. Uh, What we've been looking at over the past few weeks is a sermon series called Suburban Faith. And we've been exploring what it means to live as faithful followers of Jesus here in the suburbs. And we've talked about a lot of different pieces of that and how that looks. This morning, we're going to wrap that up. But if you're new with us for the first time and you're thinking, well, gosh, I hope I didn't miss like everything that leads up to it, don't worry, you're good. You're good. What I want to really land on today is what I believe is one of the core important pieces of what it means to live as faithful followers of Jesus here In the suburbs. And so to do that, I've got to thinking a lot about how, maybe not how, but what it looks like to be someone who lives in the suburbs. And and I got this idea because I look at the mail that we get in our mailbox. And the mail that comes in our mailbox, and maybe yours is the same, is mail that is mostly junk mail, but it's someone who is marketing to me and to my family. So the people who are doing the marketing have taken time to think about, well, what is this person like and what is important to them? They know that we, I, live in the suburbs. And so the pieces that show up in my mailbox tend to have what I would think I would get if I Googled stock photo suburban family, right? Boom. There it is for a dentist, for a doctor, for a new thing that's opening. All right. So maybe you've seen these things too in your mailbox. Maybe you've seen things that come in trying to present to us to say, we see you as a suburbanite. We believe we have a service to offer to you. And so we're trying to show that visually. Uh, And of course, that's the job of people in marketing, and and I think it's valuable and and important. But what I also think happens is we check the mail every day or maybe like once a week for some people, right? Uh, But we get those things and we see those, and, and it's the marketers who are initially saying, We believe that this is who you are as a suburbanite, and we're trying to let you know we have a service for you. And I think over time, you and I continue to look at those pieces, and eventually we are seeing a message, and we're being told that this is what it looks like to live in the suburbs. This picture, this family, this ideal, this stock photo, right? And subtly, very subtly, the message that we begin to get is to live as a follower or to live as a person in the suburbs our life should look like these marketing pictures that come in the mail. And so what they're very subtly telling us is that in order to belong here in the suburbs, we must look like these stock photos, these expected pictures, what one might think of when they think of stock photos. And so very subtly, we also begin to think that if I don't look like these photos, or if my family doesn't look like these photos... That maybe we don't belong in the suburbs, that maybe if we don't match what's being presented to us as the ideal or the model, then do we have a place, do we fit, do we belong? And again, I believe that is a very subtle nuance, but I hope you can at least go with me on this, that there tends to be a suburban ideal, an image in our mind of someone who lives in this area or this community, and that is the picture-perfect person or family. And so what I want to look at this morning in particular as we talk about our suburban faith is a story in the Bible where someone else who we thought would belong didn't belong. Uh, but before I get to that, I want to share one of my own stories because maybe you're sitting here thinking, like, I don't care a lot about, like, looks or, or I'm not the kind of person who thinks a lot about how I present myself or, or they can tell me what the suburban ideal is all day long. I don't buy into that. Like, I would have agreed with you, would it not have been for an experience I had about two weeks ago, about three, maybe three weeks ago. Uh, you, you see, the, the backstory story to this is that the night before this story took place, which is about 9 a.m. on a Monday morning, the night before, for whatever reason, the kids just did not sleep well. Uh, they weren't sick, but it was just one of those nights where one woke up, and then woke up the other one, and then we got that one back to sleep, and then this one was... Why- It was one of those nights where everybody was awake for most of the night. And so when we got up in the morning, for whatever reason, like I'm going to feel bad because I feel like usually I'm the person who gets up at night because Melanie's with the kids most of the day and that's a harder job than any job that I'll ever do, right? But so for whatever reason, she was up most nights with most of that night with the kids. um, And I had a pretty open morning because I'd already worked a little bit the day before and some of the things coming up. And I said, well, you know what? I could take. I could take Addison to school this morning. Just sleep in, get some extra sleep, rest up, and and I'll take her to school. Uh, So we did breakfast. We got the kids dressed. I was really proud of myself because, like everybody, matched. At least in my book, we matched. Right? We all got in the car. We made it to car line in time. We weren't the last car, and I was super proud of that that morning. Uh, And I dropped her off. And as we're leaving the school, I still had Sam with me. um, And my phone rings, and and so I answer the phone, and it's Melanie, and she says, "You know, oh my goodness, I'm so sorry." I was going to sleep for like 20 minutes, and it turned into like a little bit longer. But, um, you know, where are you guys? I said, well, we just, I just dropped off Addison. I've got Sam. We're headed back home. And she said, well, it's Monday. Uh, He's got my gym today. So put the phone on hold for a second. So my gym is an indoor playground, and they've got all this fun kids equipment. And we were trying to help Sam kind of like meet some other kids and get out and do some things. And so we signed him up for these my gym classes, and he hated them, right? (laughs) Like, he did not like it. So for the last three weeks, he's either been fighting it or they didn't go. And that Monday was our last day of the subscription for that. And so I, in my head, right, I'm thinking, like, Sam's not going to want to go to my gym. So I was like, okay, well, well, I'll ask him if he wants to go. Hold on a second. So we're in the car. So I said, Sam, do you want to go to my gym today? Yes, Dad. <laughs> okay. Well, I, I didn't really have anything planned for this morning, Melanie, but I think I could probably swing that. Uh, So so I hung up, and I was really kind of anxious about this. And and honestly, I wasn't anxious because it was going to throw off maybe what I'd planned for that morning or the projects that I'd planned for that morning. Here's the reason why I was anxious, was because I dressed for Carline that morning. (laughs) Okay, so some of you know what that means. That means that in Carline, I don't get out of the car. They open the door, and they take the kid out, and all they can see is, like, from here to here. So as long as I'm decent from here to here, I'm like, I'm okay. And I was wearing that morning like a white undershirt that has seen better days, right? Like it wasn't one of those ones like, oh, is that a nice V-neck? No, it was clear. This is like an old undershirt. I had like some basketball shorts on. I had flip-flops on. I had not shaven in a few days. And basically I I had gone out with no intention of presenting anything of myself in the community, right? And so now we want to go to my gym and we're driving over there and I'm getting so anxious and nervous because this is how I'm presenting myself today, right? And I'm going to walk into this place, and, and then I'm worried that they're going to look at me and judge me, like, oh, man, look at this guy. Like, <laughs> like, what does he bring to the table, you know? So I'm anxious, and I'm nervous the whole way. I think I called Melanie back, and I'm like, are you sure? Do you want to, like, can you, like, drive out here and meet me because I'm not dressed? So so we get there, and I walk in, and, and I'm just I'm just embarrassed. I'm embarrassed about how I look, at how I'm presenting myself, you The people at the counter are great. They don't say anything. Uh, I have to buy a pair of socks just because I wore flip-flops that day. And I had actually dropped something on my foot, so most of my foot was like black and blue also. Really. I I looked a mess. Uh, So I'm nervous, and and I'm 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 unsure of myself, and I go in, and and eventually I realize that I'm probably the only person there who cares that that's how I looked that morning. Sam certainly doesn't care. And so what it turns into, for me, is a really fun time, and we could play together and share together. But most of the time, as I was getting there and going in, I was just worried about what I fit. And I was worried about how people would perceive me. And I was worried about how they might look at me or judge me. Quite honestly, I was afraid they were going to judge me like I was judging myself in that moment. And so what I was realizing that morning was I was walking in And these people have in their mind that there are other moms and two dads, and I am not an ideal suburban dad at that point. I'm not presenting the person that I want to be. And I think subconsciously I'm wondering, do I even fit? Do I even belong? What is this experience going to feel like? And that story happened to someone else in the Bible, as I mentioned. And I want to look at her story because I think it speaks to our story and how we live as people here in the suburbs. And so I want to take us through this, and if you'd like to follow along, you can do that. And uh, I'll share the scripture together. You can find that at our link today at citrus.org. So Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was making more disciples and baptizing more than John. Competition existed back then, too. Although Jesus' disciples were baptizing, not Jesus himself. Therefore, he left Judea and went back to Galilee. Jesus had to go through Samaria. He came to a Samaritan city called Sychar, which was near the land of Jacob, given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus was tired from his journey, so he sat down in the well. It was about noon. Now keep that in mind. That's going to matter on the next slide. A Samaritan woman came to the well to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me some water to drink. His disciples had gone to the city to buy him some food. The Samaritan woman asked, Why do you, a Jewish man... Now, before we go to the next slide, I want to talk about this one real quick. Now, I highlighted a Samaritan woman, and on the slide before that, it was about noon. So, like central Florida, that land gets hot at noontime. And so, you need to know that if you're going to go and draw water, which was primarily the woman's responsibility in those times... You went early in the morning before it got hot. So pay attention to the fact that this woman goes to the well at noon, at the hottest part of the day. And the reason that she does that, you're probably already guessing this, is that she wants to avoid people. You see, everybody else would have gone to the well that morning to gather their water. This woman chooses to go at noon, and apparently this is her custom. So she's going to the well at noon, and we may not know exactly why yet, but what we know at this point, just by that simple fact, is that she is someone who doesn't belong or doesn't feel like she fits at the standard time when everyone else goes and does that task, just who goes a different time. Now she's also a Samaritan, and as we continue the particular passage, it says that Jesus asked for something to drink so ask for something to drink, a Samaritan woman. Jews and Samaritans don 't associate with each other so I love this little feedback here. It's just a reminder to us, in case we don't understand the setting in the Bible, that this is a big thing. Jews, of whom Jesus was, and Samaritans, of whom this woman was, do not associate. The Samaritans were seen as kind of what we might consider a counter-sect or a different part of the Jewish faith. They, they worship the same God, but in a different way and in a different place. And so Jews and Samaritans, quite simply, just did not interact. So again... This woman doesn't belong for some reason, so she goes at noon. This woman's people don't belong and don't fit. So it goes on. Jesus responded If you recognize God's gift, and who is saying to you, give me some water to drink, you would be asking him, and he would give you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, don't you have a bucket and the well is This is small. Uh, sir, you don't have a bucket and the well is deep. Where would you get this living water? You aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? So what she's doing there is something that all of us tend to do when we find that we don't belong or don't quite fit in a place. We name drop, right? Because there's this thought like if I'm kind of an outcast and I did this when I went to my gym, I quickly walked up to the counter and apologized. I'm sorry, I didn't expect to be here this morning. My wife usually brings him, right? I'm name dropping because I don't feel like I fit. She's name-dropping because she already feels like she doesn't fit with this person or this scenario, and so she's trying to lean a little harder on Jacob's name because she's not sure of her own name or her own status. He gave this well to us, and he drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks from this water that I will give will never be thirsty again. The water that I give will become in those who drink it a spring of water bubbling up into eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I may never be thirsty and will never need to come here to draw water. You hear what she's asking for? She's asking for belonging. Jesus said to her, Go get your husband and come back here. The woman replied, I don't have a husband. So just in case... We feel like she didn't have enough strikes already, and that society in that time, the fact that she didn't have a husband, only further meant that she didn't belong and she didn't fit. Jesus goes on, you're right to say I don't have a husband, Jesus answered, you've had five husbands, and the man that you're with now isn't your husband, you've spoken the truth, the woman said, sir, I see that you're a prophet, our ancestors worshiped, on this mountain, but your people say that it's necessary to worship in Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, Believe me, woman, the time is coming when you and your people will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You and your people worship what you don't know, and we worship what we know because salvation is from the Jews. But the time is coming and is here when true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. The father looks for those who worship him this way. God is spirit and it's necessary to worship God in spirit and truth. The woman said, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who is called the Christ. And when he comes, he will teach everything to us. Jesus said to her, I am the one who speaks with you. Just then Jesus' disciples arrived and they were shocked that he was talking with a woman. We might rephrase that not just to say with a woman, but with that woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why were you talking with her? The woman put down her water jar and went into the city. And she said to the people, come and see a man who has told me everything I've done. Could this man be the Christ? They left the city and went on their way to see Jesus. And so we see all these things counted against this particular woman made to make her feel as though she doesn't belong and she doesn't fit. She doesn't fit with her own people, with her own community. She doesn't fit in the religious scheme of things. She doesn't fit in the land that she's a part of. And all the name-dropping doesn't change any of it. And it reminds me that there is this deep desire in the suburbs, and I believe in every community, for a sense of belonging. We want to know that where we live, we're welcome. We want to know that the places that we choose to inhabit, whatever that looks like for us, that we are people who are welcome, that we fit, that we belong, right? And so we we get these suburban ideals that say that it should be a husband and wife and their family should look like this and their house or their apartment should look like this and their life should look like this stock photo, And when it doesn't, we begin to feel like we don't fit or we don't belong, but that others do. And the more we feel like we don't belong, the more isolated we become, the more focused just on ourselves, the more we tend to escape others because of judgment and those things. Right? So the less we feel like we belong, the more we feel isolated and alone, and the more we end up at places at noon, mostly because there's no one else there who will judge us and we can escape it for that day, I believe that we're all seeking a place to belong. And we're all, like this woman, looking for our thirst to be quenched. And I believe that those of us who are Christians, we know that that thirst quenching comes from Jesus. But I still believe that there are plenty of people in Horizon West who are looking for a space to belong. The good news for this particular day for this woman is that As she goes to the well that day, the person who happens to sit next to her is Jesus. And she may not understand how this is going to change everything, but we know this is going to change everything, right? So as Jesus sits down next to her and spends some time with her, notice simply the fact that Jesus spends time with her when he had every reason and every indication that he shouldn't or didn't need to. But as we look at the scripture, it's not on the screen, but in verse 13 through 15, Jesus tells her that everyone who drinks this water from the well will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I will give will never be thirsty. And that water that I give will become in those who drink it like a spring of water that bubbles up into eternal life. And what Jesus is offering her is a metaphor for salvation. He's saying to her that, What it means when you put your faith in Jesus as our Lord and Savior is that you offer to yourself a spring of water that can bubble up inside of you so that no matter how dry or parched your world seems around you, you have a deep and inward well that you can draw from one that won't dry up or run out or run away. And I think it's interesting that in the verse after that, in verse 19, she doesn't uh, fill out a connect card, turn it over on the back and check, I want to follow Jesus, like we can do here, right? And she doesn't uh, pray the sinner's prayer right there with Jesus and say, well, then tell me how I can do this. She, She raises another objection. Did you catch that? In verse 19, as she goes on, after Jesus has offered her this invitation to new life, offered her salvation, offered her a spring of water, what she says is she raises another theological question. Your people worship in Jerusalem. My people worship on this mountain. That doesn't seem to have a lot to do with what Jesus is trying to offer her. But I believe what we see in this, in this woman is someone who has been made an outcast and not to belong for so long that she is skeptical of good news when she hears it. How many people do you and I know who have been burned or hurt or maybe even you yourself or turned off by faith or by the church or by some other group that just because they show up one day and say, hey, you can come to our table and sit with us, you don't jump right away because we're skeptical, because you have been hurt and you don't want to do that again. What I see in this woman is someone who has been hurt for so long and outcast for so long that she's not ready to just jump in and say, oh, yes, I believe. Give me, the, give me the water if that's what it takes. Like, she's still got some questions and she's still skirting around the issue, right? And so what she's trying to do is to, to test and see if this person is the prophet, if he is the one, if what he is saying could really be true. I think as the church, we've got to give people room to be skeptical and to take time and to make decisions, and to explore faith, because that's how we do things honestly. But what Jesus does, and what he's doing in that moment, is he's beginning to erase boundaries. What Jesus is doing in that moment is he's saying, you know, it's not even about your mountain, or our mountain, or your place of worship, or our place of worship. Those things aren't important. The boundary that Jesus is beginning to erase is any boundary that puts itself between a person who is dry and thirsty and seeking and God. And we put up all kinds of boundaries in the middle, all kinds of things that keep people from belonging. and Jesus is trying to erase those boundaries so that for this woman who is thirsty and longing for acceptance and belonging, that she can find that. And so as he does that, it begins to erase boundaries. It's a reminder to us that our belonging with God does not necessarily depend on the life that we've lived, on the decisions that we've made, on the consequences that have happened to us. It's not about our family or our social status, about our past, about the wealth that we have or don't have, or about where we live. The only boundary I'm convinced that Jesus sees is any boundary that keeps us from experiencing the life-giving water of Jesus Christ. And his interest in all those things is simply to erase them And invite us into places of belonging. Because you see, in Jesus' eyes, which means in God's eyes, this woman belonged. This woman had value. This woman fit. And even if she was having a hard time accepting it or trusting it in that moment, and that's valid, Jesus was displaying to her that she mattered and that she was important, that she was welcome. And I love stories like this because it does erase the boundaries that we put up between ourselves and others. But these kinds of stories are controversial when we start saying, well, what does that look like today in our society? Because we all of a sudden start seeing boundaries er erased that we say, "Well, well, hold on a second. I'm not concerned about who's worshiping on that mountain versus that mountain. But there's boundaries in society and there's norms and social accepted things. And if we start erasing those, well, then things might get out of order. Right, So there's boundaries to belonging, and unfortunately, for all the good that suburbs offer, we can also offer a lot of boundaries to becoming a part of the community. And my concern is that the church in the suburbs can also, maybe even inadvertently, put up boundaries between those who come and those who think that they might want to, but maybe feel like they wouldn't fit or belong. You see, the church is supposed to be a boundary erasing spring of life, a boundary-erasing spring of life. But unfortunately for the church, there are times when we have simply been a place that is more of a spiritual country club, right? A country club that you can belong to if you fit what it looks like to be a part of that. And my concern and my hope for us at this church and the churches here in Horizon West is that we always refuse to be a spiritual country club that says, come if you look like this. But if you don't, like, maybe there's another place for you. We have got to be a place that sees ourselves as a boundary-erasing spring of life where the only thing we we know to do is to, to interact with people and to erase whatever boundary it is that has kept them from experiencing the fullness of Jesus Christ in their life. And so we've got to realize that there can be no... Perfect or ideal picture of what a family or an individual or what a life could look like. We've got to begin with the most important thing, which is are we in a relationship with God through Jesus? Are we growing in that? Because I believe the people of Horizon West are looking for a place to belong. And when they find that place to belong, when you and I find the place that we belong, we can be fully ourselves. We can come alive. When you're a part of a community or a group or a family and you know that you belong and that you fit, you can be yourself. And that's exactly what Jesus is inviting this woman to do, is to be fully herself in his presence. And so to understand what that looks like, I want to take us to um, another shorter story in Scripture, and it's uh, Jesus' own baptism. And, And when Jesus was baptized... Uh, When Jesus was baptized, he comes down to the river. This was the beginning of his ministry and says, When Jesus was baptized, he immediately came up out of the water. Heaven was open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God coming down like a dove and resting on him. A voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I dearly love. I find happiness in him. I love so much about this passage, but what I love most about this is that when Jesus is baptized, the Spirit of God, the voice of God comes down and says, This is my Son whom I dearly love. I find happiness in Him. And the place that this fits is not at the end of Jesus' life and ministry when He's done it all right, when He's lived as a sinless person, when He's offered the gift of hope and healing to others. These words are spoken over Jesus before He really does anything before he begins his ministry, before he does anything, God says, this is my beloved son whom I dearly love. And I think how those words must have encouraged him on the task that laid ahead of him, because those are words of belonging. Jesus belonged to God, and he sensed that he fit, and so he could be fully himself as he lived in the world. And I wonder how would these words change us if we could hear that sentence from heaven every morning, right? This is my daughter whom I dearly love. I find happiness in her. This is my son who I dearly love. I find happiness in him. Imagine if those words from heaven were spoken like into your bedroom before you even woke up in the morning right? You would know that you belong to God, that you fit, that you had a place, that God loved you, that you were valued. And imagine if we could live from that place every day with that level of confidence, no matter what happens around us, God's got my back and God's with me and God loves me. And I'm going to mess up a lot of things this day, but God's still with me and there's forgiveness, right? I mean, that's a game changer. And so this baptism of Jesus becomes A preview of coming attractions. Very fitting for a movie theater, right? A preview of coming attractions. Because when you and I are baptized, I believe that these are the words that God speaks over us also. So if you are baptized as an infant or as a child, I mean, let's be honest. When we baptize an infant, we're not expecting a lot from them right away. Like, we're not expecting them to start giving. They don't have to join the setup team, right? We don't expect them to do a lot, What we're saying over that child is that God is working in you before you can really even offer anything except for crying and you're hungry and a lot of full diapers to the world. What we're saying to that child is you belong and you fit before you even have anything to offer. And so when an adult is baptized and when they profess their faith in Jesus, what we're saying to them is whatever you have done or maybe haven't done, is forgiven in Jesus, and that as your baptism, God speaks the words over us, that before any of that stuff ever happened, before any of that happened, that you belong. You did belong, you do belong, and you will always belong. But we start looking around at the ideals of society and the things they project onto us, and we start to wonder, like, do I? Do I really There's a song that just came out uh, by Hillsong United. Uh, And I'm not going to sing it because you wouldn't enjoy it at all at that moment. Um, But here's how the lyrics go. I was found before I was lost. I was yours before I was not. Grace to spare for all my mistakes. And that part just wrecks me. I mean, this is such a beautiful picture of the grace of God which is present and active in our lives before we even recognize who or what God is up to. In theology, we call this prevenient grace. Grace that is active, that goes before us. Grace that is drawing us to God. And it's the kind of grace that wrecks the boundaries that keep us from belonging. It's the kind of grace that we think maybe if God doesn't like this or doesn't like me or doesn't like that about that person that just begins to wreck and tear down those boundaries so that we can see that before all of these things, there was grace to spare. Grace that erases anything that keeps our dry and thirsty souls from the life-giving water of Jesus Christ. And that kind of grace, as I said, makes people deeply uncomfortable because it doesn't play fair. And it doesn't fit our preconceived notions. And it doesn't bring us people who look exactly like us. It doesn't give us stock photo suburban people. It doesn't give us stock photo suburban church people either. What it shows us and what it gives us are the children of God, of all people. And it tells us that each one of these individuals are beloved children of God. Each one of you are beloved children of God, over whom God says, You are my beloved child, and in you I am well pleased. What this grace does is it teaches us that Jesus welcomes people that we were taught to exclude. It accepts those whose lives we may find unacceptable, and it brings people and families who don't look necessarily like us, but it tells us that this is exactly the kind of church that we're supposed to be. And I think for some it's hard to hear that good news because just like this woman, they've been so conditioned to not fitting that the promise or the hope of fitting and belonging can be hard to believe. And it tells us, I think, that if someone is skeptical or unsure, that that is okay. But I believe that that is on us as the church for presenting that notion. And I saw this in a powerful way when I was in Israel a few years back there's the Mount of the Beatitudes where Jesus gave his first sermon, uh, the Beatitudes of Matthew. And they put up this, this little fountain, which is in the other half of the picture, and I'll show you in a second. And it's this like little bubbling spring, and they put this plaque next to it from John 7. It says, Let anyone who thirst come to me and drink, and whoever believes in me, as Scripture says, rivers of living water will flow from him. And what really struck me about this was how much this particular picture looks like the church. Because we put up these beautiful pictures that say, let everyone who thirsts come and drink from the water. And we build these elaborate fountains next to it that say, look, here's an image that says drink from this water. And then we put up signs that say, don't drink the water, right? (laughs) And we wonder, why are people so skeptical? Why do they think we won't accept them or that they won't belong? Because we end up doing things like this with our actions, right? And this is the trouble that we have as the church, and these are the places where as the church we need to grow more in the image of Jesus. We need to look at the places where we said, let all come who are thirsty, but don't drink the water, right? And as funny as that is, that has stuck with me for years because there's so many ways that we do that. So what we need to do as a church is to continue to be aware of the boundaries, continue to erase those. To continue to say that everyone who walks through the doors or desires to be a part of the faith community or those people that we meet at noon at the well who may never darken the doors of a church and find a way to say to them, you do belong, you do fit. God knows you, he knows all about you, and he still loves you. In fact, you're still his beloved child. Because when people know that they belong to God, I believe that we can more freely live and be ourselves. We can more freely live in this world. And so as a United Methodist Church, uh, this takes on a special meaning for us, and there's a particular passage in our kind of documents that I really resonate with. It speaks to the inclusiveness of the church, and it says, United Methodist Church is part of the church universal, which means the church throughout the world, which is the body of Christ. This is my favorite line. The United Methodist Church acknowledges that all persons are of sacred worth. All persons without regard to race, color, national origin, status, or economic conditions shall be eligible to attend its worship services, participate in its programs, receive the sacraments, upon baptism be admitted as baptized members, and upon taking vows declaring the Christian faith, becoming professing members of any local church in The Connection, In the United Methodist Church, no conference or other organizational unit of the church may be structured so as to exclude any member or any constituent body of the church because of race, color, national origin, status, or economic condition. And what I love about that passage is each person is a person of sacred worth. And what I also see as I read that is we've named five or six categories And there are a lot of categories in there that we are still having boundaries up with. So while this is good and this is valuable, if we are going to see every person as a person of sacred worth, it's going to take us as the United Methodist Church erasing a lot more boundaries. There's things that need to be listed up there that are not. And this is the work that as the larger United Methodist Church is doing. And it is hard, and I'm sure you've read news articles about it. But I desire to see the kind of church where we can just say, All persons are persons of sacred worth, period, end of sentence. Or we can expand it to such a way where those who felt like they have not been included have a place where they belong. So I I see that there are still a few people who are missing, that there are still boundaries that need to be erased, and that is our job as the church to find new ways to offer the life-giving, bubbling up water of Jesus in ways that don't offer qualifications. And so as we think about this, as we wrap up, what I want to offer to you are a couple of ways that you can practically live this out. Because what belonging does is when we know that we belong, it pushes us outward into the world. And so what we've been looking at over the last couple of weeks are these things called counter-liturgies, ways of living that help us live faithfully as people in the suburbs but are a little bit different than normal. So I've got a prompt up there, and those may not make a lot of sense, but if you go to today at citruschurch.org. You'll see a little paragraph about each. And these are something that you can read today, think about today, decide, and you can put into practice this week. And they're small, tangible actions that will help us to put ourselves out there, to know that we belong, to know that others belong, and to give them that opportunity and invitation. So I want you to know if you're here today and you have felt like you don't belong or don't fit in church, that you belong. Because God says so. To apologize for the times where as the church we have put up a wall or a barrier that says, well, maybe you don't. Or if you do want to belong, you need to do a couple of things first. Because Jesus sits down at the well and spends time with this woman and it tells us that all people are people of sacred worth. So whether or not you feel like you fit or like you belong, whether you match that picture of the ideal suburbanite or not. What, what I became aware of as I think back about that My Gym experience is that I was so thankful that I, when I went in there, none of the other parents were like, dude, that shirt is gross. You need to change, right? Or like, you look a hot mess. Please leave. The staff never gave me one of those like up and downs, you know. They just simply accepted me and welcomed me in as I was, And let me fully participate. And I think they resembled and modeled what the church can and should do. But the place where I saw God that morning was in my son, Sam. And I saw God in Sam because he could have cared less. He had no idea that what I was wearing was presenting to that group that I am not his ideal suburban dad. That I am not the right pitcher. That did not even cross his head because to Sam, I belong as his dad. There's simply no question or even understanding outside of that. It didn't matter what I wore, if I looked right, if I looked messy. What mattered to him was that I belonged. And when I realized that I belonged and that that was the opportunity, I could live freely, I could play freely, and we had a wonderful, amazing hour together. And so what I want to encourage you is to know that you belong to God without qualifications, and that God looks at us with those innocent eyes as a child and says, you belong and you are valued, and I love you. Amen.